Welcome, friends, to the bonus episode. It's now Thursday. You're in the future. Welcome to my voice in your ears. We're here with Tim Rogers, a.k.a. Jack Ladder and Marcus Teague, talking about music that hit different for you. As a young boy, Tim Rogers, growing up in Avalon, the first time you really can remember music affecting you. Music affecting me. I remember seeing um, like Michael Jackson, Black or White, on Rage. That was a powerful moment. The ending with all the faces molding into it, different faces. Yeah, the, the, huge video. Yeah, the the, the face um, mutation. Yeah, it was great. And that record, Dangerous. I, I guess that was my vintage in terms of Michael Jackson records. That, that yeah, I remember I had it on CD. Hell yeah, that was the only CD I had in in the collect the family collection. Um, it would have been about forty-two dollars as well. I'm yeah. guessing to to purchase. Yeah, probably. At it that had time. like I think like did it have seven singles that came off that record? Let's 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 let's, yeah. let's so you had. Do you re- do you remember? Do you remember the time? Remember the time was. Yeah. I remember that. I still played that at weddings. No one's told me off. I got told off for playing <laughs> a different song the other night. I won't go into it. Jam. Yep. Huge. Because Michael Jordan was in the film clip, I believe. Why you want to trip on me? Yeah. In the closet, which Madonna uncredited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, wow. Madonna uncredited. It's been a while. Yeah. Remember the time. Heal the world. Black or white. Who is it? Oh, yeah. Keep the faith. And even dangerous. Oh, yeah, seven singles off it. Amazing. I like the fact. Can you separate the art from the artist, uh, Jack? With Michael? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I've seen Michael's a very difficult, damaged person. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not. Um, I haven't seen the, the movie mm-hmm. uh, or the documentary with the allegations and stuff so uh, um michael somehow preserved as a very simple pure little man but you know i'm sure it's horrendous mm. it is and yeah i mean i'm the same i can i can appreciate music i mean my question is where do we draw the line with with uh with with artists and people that, whose music we enjoy that's a can of worms i have a whole box of biographies i was moving out of my office last week and uh I pulled out a box. It's just a box of like, you know, difficult men, <laughs> you know, with a Serge Gainsbourg DVDs, <laughs> and I have the Brian Wilson. Um, wouldn't it be nice biography? But you know, it's it's everyone, Bob Dylan, and uh, you know, every everyone is difficult. I think everyone everyone's lives are complicated, and great artists are capable of great mischief. Great wrongdoing and crossing lines and and yeah how to separate them is is absolute (laughs) what's the next music that came along in your life and said hey over here tim this is the thing uh from michael jackson um i started playing drums in the school band when i was quite young um that was big deal for me were you super tall already yeah i was pretty tall but my my babysitter or uh, here's the kid that lived across the street who was a bit older than me it was this guy felix bloxham <laughs> who's actually a really great drummer now um plays with everyone and um great name he taught me how to he taught me how to play the drums and um and then i think it was really hip-hop 
stuff that I got into young when I was in primary school. Snoop Dogg, Doggy Star was a huge album for me when I was incredible. Speaking of problematic men, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you call your album Doggy Style, you know you're like you're very. Here are my cards. <laughs> Do with them what you will. Yeah. I can imagine you just bumping your head and, and getting. Where were you listening to Doggy Style? I had a little yellow sports Walkman, and I had it on cassette. I remember I had my bro- older brother. He gave me like a mixtape of um, a lot of early hip hop stuff and Ice T and N.W.A. and all that stuff. And I was play- because I was playing drums. It was very beat orientated, and I, I was learning how to do those rhythms. And and then you know, obviously, they're sampling a lot of like old funk stuff and you know i got into parliament out of that and all that you know so much so much in the meters and great stuff coming out of that and so what what instruments were you playing around this time i just played drums in the in the school band um and but we had a very progressive band conductor michael lonsdale um, and we were mainly playing like TV show themes. So we'd play like Ghostbusters and like, um, the theme from Dinosaurs. Do you remember that TV show? Yes. Yeah. We played that. Vaguely. Yeah. I can't remember how it goes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all sorts of stuff. I remember, you know, CNC Music Factory. This is taking over a bit, but I'll never get another chance to tell this Sorry, But the other day in the shower, I had this flashback to... I also learned drums for a bit in um, high school and I remember there was like, I think it was in year seven or year eight coming up to like the end of year performance and I was going to play drums for Comfortably Numb. Oh, yeah. Pink Floyd, which yeah. is great because at the end you just get to do all the kind of like, I don't know, stereotypical stick twirling and all that kind of stuff. And right at the last second with all my friends watching, the music teacher walked past just before I'm going to get on stage and was just like, I'm going to play this one. Oh. <laughs> Took the sticks off me, and he played, and I missed my big chance. Jeez! Oh, but what a what a what a what an asshole teacher yeah. in hindsight. Yeah. But maybe he'd been waiting yeah. for that moment longer than you. I, th- I think he, in hindsight, I think that's that's yeah. true. That's an accurate reading. Yeah. This he was like, well, well, this is it yeah. for me. But <laughs> <laughs> either, either I bust in and play comfortably numb at the U seven formal, or or I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that's Was that's a good music yeah. industry tale, you know, because the music business is cutthroat <laughs> like that. And he was setting you up for a, a life in, in in the biz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, now now when it happens, I can say I've been here yeah. before. You need, <laughs> you, you know, you got to seize the moment. And they got one shot. <laughs> <laughs> Those moments make you though, don't they? Because you go. I remember seeing a band called New Breed and they were going to headline a festival in Melbourne and D La Soul refused to get off stage. And they prepared this very special set. D La Soul just played for another 45 minutes and literally they were saying, fuck y'all, we are not getting off stage. And these guys were like, wow, it's our hometown. And they never got off stage. So they never got to have this huge, huge moment. Wow. And ain't nobody talking about New Breed anymore. Yeah. <laughs> good, good breakbeat, breakbeat dudes from the early 2000s, but a bit of a dick move by D La. Have you seen that show Tales from the Tour Bus that's out now? Negative. No, that's so good. It's a, it's sort of like an animated history of country singers, and there's a thing with um Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry doing a tour together, and they would fight for who was going to close the show, and the, when Jerry Lee Lewis had to open for Chuck Berry, he um at the end of his set he just poured kerosene inside the piano and set it on fire and walked off stage. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, follow that. <laughs> there's actually a really, there's a good podcast by some Scottish dudes. Or right, yeah. They, they might be British, actually. Um, you, yeah, let's yeah. say UK, which is all about the worst gig stories. Okay. And um, a- Andy Falcus from Future of the Left and McCluskey yeah. was on it. And it's, it's it's such a great idea for a podcast because, of course, anyone who's played music for a while soon realizes that the good moments, the ones that go in the actual doco, you know, are few and far between. Yeah. <laughs> All the horror stories. So many horror stories. Speaking of Andy Falcus, um, he's a person that does not waste a, a second up there. doesn't waste a word with, the, with his banter. Even back singing, doing the Hertzville original shows, Jack, mm. you're like, this guy's fucking funny. This like you just had this kind of like sort of gloomy presence, but all of this mirth and sarcasm and acerbic wit and absurdism coming out of you. Um, yeah, where did you sort of get that kind of craft? Because maybe some people originally were expecting you to be quite serious and then you open your mouth and um, I remember like yeah. laughing my ass off. Um, I think because I had to deal with hecklers at the Hopeton when I started. Because I think when I first started playing music, I was I had a, a post rock band, and um, it, you know, we were very influenced by um, you know, God Speed You Black Emperor and Tortoise and this kind of stuff. And yeah, I was never really that into Mogwai to be honest. But um, uh, yeah, we did that for a while, and we were trying to make the scene. And then I went, I did a university transfer, and ended up in like upstate New York somewhere. With all these kids that were obsessed with microphones and K Records stuff. And um, we had a lot of like modular synthesis there that no one really knew how to use. So they'd just like record songs on their acoustic guitar and then just make all these drones in the background and, and submit those as their song, as their works. So I was kind of, you know, really inspired by that. And I came back to Sydney and I remember a guy booked me a show at the Hollywood Hotel and he wanted the band to play and I just showed up and played songs and people heckled it was just an instantaneous thing people just wanted to throw shit at me and you know (laughs) and then I started playing at the Hopeton pretty regularly opening for lots of different people and it you know it's just a a means of um self-defense you know and and for whatever reason I, I if someone said something to me I could um respond in a way that was, I guess, subverted the nature of the really quite simple, earnest songs that I was singing, you know, and it was, mm. it's, it's that combination of, of sadness and humor is pretty strong. Being sad. And what's that other emotion? Happy. Ha- oh, <laughs> I felt that once. <laughs> <laughs> In a previous podcast, I think it was. <laughs> So coming out of Snoop uh, oh. <laughs> into your teens and t- tell us about yeah other music that I know Mill and Colin was flying um, around and Down by Law etc. But yeah. well, what was the stuff that was baking your cake? Yeah, as a teenager, uh, um, that pop punk stuff was big. I mean Nirvana briefly. I was never really into grunge too too much. I, I sort of. I mean, I had those records, and I listened to them, and they're everywhere, but it wasn't really my thing. I liked Rancid quite a lot, mm. um, yeah. which sort of... Ruby, 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 Salvo. Yeah, great tune. Um, and then I... Agreed. Uh, 
out of that, I think there's, there was a, there's some merging between a ska punk thing into like jazz, and it was that happened very quickly. And it was a very ugly sort of transition, um, and then I was sort of like into Herbie Hancock and and Parliament and Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, and and um, that kind of more electric jazz fusion, and then then that the hit the far outreaches of that with some really super ugly music that I was into in high school. Um, like, so, and how's that happening? Is that through like friends records or it was, it was like, like a private investigation, um, you know, through music tutors and, you know, I had a, I had a guy, like I was playing bass and I had a really, the, my first lesson with the bass teacher, he taught me, a, um, uh, um, Oh God! What's his name? The guy from um, uh, um, Donald Fagan. You know, my first bass yeah. lesson. I want to learn like Red Hot Chili Peppers or something, and he teaches me Donald Fagan. Um, He's Donald. Donald Fagan from Buddy um, Steely Dan. You know, it was <laughs> oh. his solo record um, from the Night Flyer. Um, and so, you know, he was pushing me and you know lending me records that were like pretty stinky but helped me to <laughs> become a musician understand music i think you know it's an ugly thing but it, it really has helped me and it helped me have a language with lawrence and donny and you know i wanted to go to the con and do, study jazz and and be a jazz musician but i just wasn't really very good at improvising and i wasn't i didn't really have a mind for that but i was liked the songs you know and i liked the traditional songs and i liked all those 50s miles davis records with the quintet with john coltrane and stuff and they would just play the song and then play around the song and i i think that was very helpful and helped me with my phrasing and so when i sing a song it's not i don't really have melodies necessarily a lot of my songs are you know phrasing based and when I sing them live, I'm, you know, move around and, and can sing them in all sorts of different ways. And that's probably comes from being into that as a kid. Um, mm. And then out of that, um, I got into Aphex Twin and Oof. Boards of Canada and, and, and that stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like the new jazz in a way. And I think totally. people like Lawrence and... Um, probably felt the same way like Ortecker and you, you know having a being interested in jazz and then going oh this is a whole new world that's happening and and then getting into tortoise and and that post-rock thing and then the big trigger which is, seems so strange now is that my brother had um Dave Pajo's Papa M live from a shark cage and we would he was teaching me to play backgammon because he'd come home and he was living at the back at the family house after years living away. And we would drink wine, play backgammon and listen to Live from a Shark Cage. And this is when I'm sort of like 16, 17. Mm. And, um, Which is like, what, I guess in hindsight, one of the early sort of like versions of a solo artist emerging from that post-rock kind of collective stuff. Yeah with like a bit more of an intimacy and individual mm. voice. And throughout all that time, I'm mainly listening to instrumental music. Not, I have very little interest in singers. Um, and then Paho does like a 
Papa M sings and he does a couple of country songs and I lost my mind and was like, <laughs> I'm suddenly like into country, like songs, like people singing <laughs> folk songs. And that kind of coincided with the Nick Drake thing. And I went super deep on the Nick Drake in a Nick Drake hole for a year. Um, mm. And then out of that was more like um, into, you know, Bell and Sebastian and found my way through indie rock and then was at uni and going to the like teachers club where they'd play Depeche Mode and New Order and all that stuff, which I always found really fucking scary. You know, I always, <laughs> I, I remember. Depeche Mode is personal Jesus. I played up loud the first time you hear it. It fucks you yeah. up. Yeah, all, all that music because it's such a different world and I'd been listening to like even, you know, mod stuff like Small Faces or like T-Rex and getting into that kind of English sort of rock music. I never, you know, the things that I never liked, I never liked Led Zeppelin. I never liked Pink Floyd. Well, not after that experience. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was Marcus. <laughs> sorry, T. Triggering. Yeah, I think there's these big like, big bands that... um that are really influential and really important. And I just never really had much connection with them. And I had found my way through all these little back doors. Like my introduction really to liking electronic music was like Leonard Cohen, I'm your man. And that was because I lost the first CD from the compilation that I had. And then I started playing the second CD and I was like, Oh, this is actually really good. And then that op that kind of opened Depeche Mode for me in a way, which is, it's totally weird and doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, it's the first time that's ever been said on any, in any conversation <laughs> ever. I got into Depeche Mode. <laughs> True who? When, <laughs> when, when, when you sort of started accepting singer, basically singer songwriters mm. in kind of India or yeah. whatever, did your own voice annoy you? Yeah. You've, you famously, famously got this great baritone voice, but it's miles away from like yeah. Bell and Sebastian or folk music like Nick Drake and all that. Oh stuff. yeah. It was like, it was small guys. I had a copy of um, the doctor came at dawn when I was in that university upstate and I'd trudge through the snow listening to, you know, doctor came at dawn. Uh, and that had a profound sort of effect on me. Uh, I guess there's so many things happening and then, you know, there's mercury rev and flaming lips and, all those bands now that feel Im important to me again. But yeah, I think Bill Callahan's probably, you know, really super important for me to make me feel comfortable with my voice. And then it was like Fred Neal was a big deal. And then, you know, people are like, oh, you got a low voice. You heard Scott Walker. And you're like, no. Like, <laughs> check that out. Yeah. Come this way. Um, Give us a Bill Callahan story, sir. Hit us, hit us with one. Some backstage build. <laughs> I don't think he's a very effusive character. Is he? Yeah. He, he takes a long time to warm up. I just remember when we were rehearsing. Um, well, that that was a really odd thing. That when Aaron from Spunk was putting the band together, he's like, Bill wants three violin players, drums and bass. He wants the bass to have a delay pedal and he wants the drums to just be kick, snare and hats. So I took the delay pedal. I think I borrowed a delay. I haven't, yeah, I borrowed a bass off someone to do it. I, I kind of lied and said, you know, yeah. Because they're like, you're a bass player. I'm like, yeah, I did play bass. I didn't have a bass at the time. <laughs> and so I borrowed the bass and the delay and I'm like, they're ready to go. And every time I would hit the delay pedal, 
where I would think would be the part that he might want me to use it when it, you know there's some sort of climactic moment and he wants it to fog over a little and he just turns to me and go like <laughs> shakes head <laughs> and, uh, and I, I had the delay pedal for the whole tour and I never used it <laughs> he just wanted me to have it <laughs> just yeah. in case maybe it's 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 the brown M&M's thing it's like well if he brings the delay pedal I know he's listening yeah. I know he's reading the, the right yeah maybe <laughs> yeah <laughs> I was going to say, I said this to a friend of mine this morning, so it won't be as funny, but it's like buying ecstasy in your 20s. Better to have it and not need it than not have it. Anyway, a little snapshot into my world. (laughs) Yahoo! And so that would have been around around the time you released your first record, Not Worth Waiting For. Yeah, touring with Bill. Yeah, I put that record out and then I, um, I... Maybe I'd recorded Love Is Gone. I was in the process of recording that and I did that tour. And that transition from the first record to the second record is pretty, yeah, it's a pretty big stylistic yeah. shift, at least for the objective listener. What what were you kind of listening to, and what was working for you that made you set set you off on that path? Yeah, well, after I made the first album, I um, I uh, tried to make the second follow up very quickly, and I worked with Tony again on it, and um. And I got a little bit too ambitious and I wanted to make this very um, slow moving sort of kind of similar to Hijack really. Um, lot, there was a lot of um, like a wind ensemble I had with like oboe <laughs> and clarinets and, and then he was cutting that up and making arrangements out of it. And and this is Tony Dupay, yeah. is that how yeah, you say Tony it? Who Dupay, yeah. was work? he was working out of kangaroo valley at that stage yeah and very for anyone who doesn't know was very into sort of very organic kind of found sound kind of style of recording yeah Yeah. it wasn't really working for us he sort of got halfway through the record and took the money that i'd given him and went on a holiday to berlin with his girlfriend but um, allegedly allegedly but he said you know he said i could stay at the house and because the touring the first album, you know, uh, I started, I met Lawrence. I was playing more like the songs that were very folk and um, very delicate um, as, a, as a rock trio, essentially, just drums, bass, and guitar. And so when I went to make the second record, it just didn't, nothing was really working. And I made a record with Dave Rennick from Dappled Cities, and um, that's when I met Burke read from from Gerland. and then i started hanging out i mm-hmm. was living in darlinghurst and um i was just i guess hanging out on the scene a little bit too much and you know i got fed up with this like making this fiddly country music on a on an eight track reel to reel um and burke was like why don't you come to the studio the bjb studio and we'll just get the band and just record the songs you know and and I start I was, through the process of making that record where I was doing this very fragile stuff. I played it for some people. Everyone thought it sucked. And then I, I, and I think I heard Little Richard. I bought like a Little Richard CD, best of it, like JB Hi-Fi or something. And was just like, okay, this is music. This is music I can understand. This right. is simple. And then, yeah. you know, I was the singer that 
Talking Heads and Little Richard and early rock and roll stuff, and it was just like, I can do this. This makes sense. Yeah. Let's let's do let's do that. There's definitely some David Byrne in, mm. in your yeah in the, your presentation. I mean, I'm sure when you wrote the lyric for Cold Feet and for Hertzville, I'm gonna make like a tree. Yeah. I'm gonna leaf like that. You, you either yeah. stick the landing or you don't on that mm. one, and you absolutely did. And I still giggle and like like a little schoolgirl every time I hear it. Do you ever, when you're singing uh, that live? I think it's funny. Do you ever give like it's it's, it's yeah, a joke? Yeah, it's supposed that, to be funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. Well, I'm I'm mm. happy. That is funny. Um, yeah, I, I just think that that's something that's intrinsically you, and I think that's why people are still drawn to you, and, and the fact that you know you go through these stylistic shifts, mm. we all still come back to you. Like all I can think of right now after this interview finishes is playing hijack really loud in my that's house. Great, I'm so man. excited to do that. Oh. But um, yeah, it's gonna be good. I imagine that pivot to making that record, you know, with a band that sounds really distinct from the previous one, kind of set you off on a on a path of kind of thinking well cool now i know i can do that like and you you soon became an artist that yeah. was pretty happy to kind of reject the previous thing you did and just yeah it set, all feels set forth very, on a new idea looking from the outside I'm, it might seem like calculated but you miss all the all the all the steps in between and it's all really no, about interpersonal relationships and it's a very natural progression mm. you know like doing the love is Go- gone record and then I broke my arm and met Kieran because he was opening for us and it was like, well, I need a guitar player and I need someone that can fill out the sound of like the horns or whatever. And I hadn't really considered that it would be a problem, but Kieran came up and joined the band and it was just really a natural thing. And then he, everyone was very receptive to Kieran and, and instead of trying to force him to play like the record or anything, it was like, let's just go with him because he's clearly doing something and that's all he can do <laughs> you know we're not gonna get him to like yeah, play like yeah, a session yeah, guitar yeah. player and you know <laughs> i think there's always this i'm i'm as a person yeah. have been very willing to compromise and i think in a lot of ways and go with what's happening and and um you know doing that tour we found a drum machine somewhere on in someone's house that we were staying with on tour and and then that became the the catalyst for Hertzville, and there's just all these random life events that sort of happen that just dictate the nature of the music. Yeah, it doesn't. I I don't mean to sound like that. It's I don't think it's calculated at all. But I can see how, in terms of a music industry, especially in Australia, yeah. <laughs> you know, each time it's like, oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah, what's this like for you know, you know what I mean, like. It's, Australian, oh. well, I mean, journalists, I guess, and, and the way that kind of people write yeah. and talk about music, they like to have a through line oh. that makes them sound like they, yeah. you know, they've been here for the journey. Yeah. So when there's something fresh or a 180, it can, I don't know, in a, in a small industry, you can not get people offside, but when people are confused, they're less likely to perhaps kind of support you or something. Yeah, I, I hadn't prepared for that going into the music industry. And I, you know, I think a lot of the artists that I liked, you know, I guess we haven't talked about Neil Young, but, you know, he followed a kind of career where he did whatever he wanted in a way. And the best moment of that in, in my career was I did the Love Is Gone record and Bernard Zool, the music writer for City Morning Herald, loved it, gave a great review, might have given it like five stars or something. 
And when I put out Hertzville, he was seemed like deeply offended. And I did an interview with him. Yeah, and his whole in, <laughs> his whole so angle on it was like, you're a f- like pretender. You're you know you're not what you say you are. You know you're all about this sort of um, character or you know, and I. I just could I couldn't see it from his perspective because I was inside my thing. I'm like I'm just writing songs and making music. I didn't, but like there's a lot of belief and particularly people in music criticism or that are deeply invested in that side of things. I wasn't prepared for how much they would latch on to their personal investment, the how they perceived me, and and how it would be upsetting for them with their set of associations of what they think something is. And they've sold it to their audience. They're like, I support this guy. And then it's like, you do a backflip and they're like, I need to be very vocal that I do not support this guy now. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like that gig at the Hollywood yeah, yeah. when the promoter was probably there and you're playing folk, folk music yeah. or whatever. And he's probably up the back going, I'm fucking sorry, guys. I didn't know it was yeah. going to be like this. And so, and so he feels put upon and perhaps, I guess, how people receive your music, who's pretending and who's a fraud is objective. Like that could be as much of a comment on the person who's writing or talking about the music. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a bizarre thing. I mean, I, I didn't understand. I can see it so clearly now the way that successful artists navigate their career through the industry. And it's really like it's very clearly set up series of of attacks you know to get to a certain point where you're holding a position in the market and you've brought an audience through and it might have take might take two records three records the fourth album you kind of you're there and then you're out and i just it just never dawned on me that that was something that i was gonna be doing or that i was capable of doing and you know there's people around me that wanted me to do that Oh, that's the thing. I think what you find if you stick it out that the people that come with you are rusted on for life and that, you know, you as opposed to, I don't know, having a hit rock record and everyone rejects the next one and you're kind of left high and dry. Like at least now, you know. Yeah, to a degree. Do what you do and there are people <laughs> paying attention. Gentlemen, gentlemen, uh, we have come to the conclusion of this wonderful bonus episode. The last question I always ask though, Jacques, uh, is the the song that hit you different in the last sort of week or so? Personally, I, there's a song called Tonight by Sibylle Bayer. I don't know much about this woman. B-A-I-E-R. It's on a calming music for Chaotic Times playlist, which Milo Eastwood from PBS's Breakfast Spread put together. Mean DJ. And it's just all very calm. And I'm just obsessed with this song. What's the song that, that's, that's got you differently hit in the last little while? <laughs> Uh, the last couple of weeks, a few pe- people mentioned to me that I should be listening to Fat Gadget, and so I have wow, just that. been listening to a lot of Fat Gadget. And um, the Fat Gadget sort of <laughs> like <laughs> the first signing to Mute, and was really in- inspiring for Depeche Mode. Apparently, really a super interesting guy. He's cool. he's one of those people is an auteur hmm. that just kind of. He started out making, you know, pretty intense industrial kind of club music, ended up making folk music. Um, the song, there's some great tracks. The singles are all great. There's Lady Shave and, and um, Love Parasite, yeah. great tunes. That's a good tune. Coitus Interruptus. 
That's fantastic. What a name. Collapsing, collapsing, collapsing mm. new people. Yeah, this looks awesome. Yeah. I'm going to crank this and hijack today. Very good. Thank you. Marcus? I think because of lockdowns, even though I swore I never would do it, I've started mm. trying to run. It's okay. Safe space. Um, and I've always, I've always, <laughs> I've always hated running. Happy running. to play basketball and like not notice that I'm running, but can't stand the idea of going for a run. Running as a big guy, I always felt like I was like Frankenstein's monster, sort of lurching along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's what it is. It's like you can't dance at the show because you're the one person that everyone can freaking see. But um, anyway, I I really liked that. The band The Walkman from um, New York back in the day. Anyway, all those dudes have split off into other bands and one of them's called Walter Martin and he makes these kind of um, very lush, great sounding records. And he's got this, and with, with quite funny lyrics, like he's got one song on his album Reminisce Bar and Grill, which is just called I Went Alone on a Solo Australian Tour. And it's him just basically like talking about meeting different people in Australia, including sitting next to like the National Girls netball team on the on the plane on the way to brisbane anyway he's got a song called i can run now from the hellhounds but i can't hide and it's just a track about him going for a run and it's i always think about it when i go for a run now and it makes me happy knowing that there's another musician that is also going for a run and it's okay and he's thinking about it and can put it in a song Mm. lawrence lawrence is a runner Awesome. Ah. Well, being a drummer, I guess that would yeah, also be really good for your cardio, it's wouldn't a big it? Big deal. Excellent. And you use that, Marcus, use that word, you, you, happy, use that as well. So that's been the uh, the go-to word of the day. We're all very happy little Vegemites. Um, a poor joke to end. Friends, that's it for the bonus episode. Thank you so much, Tim Rogers, for hanging out with us, a.k.a. Jack Ladder, a.k.a. not a stomping Frankenstein, I think a, a stylish auteur who is just getting better and better. And we really dig the fact that you gave you gave a little bit back to your fans with doing the Hertzville thing as well. It's a nice little doff of the cap and everyone got around you. So, yeah, long may you reign, sir. Thanks so much for hanging yeah. out with us. Well, thank you for having me. Tim, when do you think you'll be able to play some shows with this orchestra idea? Uh, next year sometime. May, April. They're not supposed to, you know, it might happen. I don't, I don't know. I'm playing on Christmas Eve. In Wollongong, the venue is La La La's. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah you got, you've got a um, a sexy Scrooge vibe going on there, so <laughs> get around him. That's the theme. Sexy Scrooge. Sexy Scrooge. <laughs> Don't be a stooge. Come see the sexy Scrooge. Thank you so much, listeners, for getting around us. Get around Jacques and Marcus and I. Yeah, have a wonderful, wonderful day wherever you are in the world. Be nice to each other and uh, go listen to Fad Gadget. That's the advice. All right. Peace out. Hit different. See you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. See you. Awesome. Three-way therapy. See ya. Four-way. <laughs>